and we're back. Today I am here with Sam King, a student at Yale University studying religion and ecology. Sam, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you today, Amalia? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here with you and to learn and for all of us to hear all of your amazing insights and what you have learned. Um, we had one of your professors on already, and so I'm really excited just to hear a perspective from a student at Yale and what you're studying. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here and happy to, to offer any insights or reflections from my experience in, in the field. Amazing. So tell us a little bit about you and what you're studying. What got you into this field? What got you interested in re religion and ecology? Yeah, so um, like you, I've been interested in um, religion from a young age. How do humans um, make meaning from the sort of mystery of being alive? And how do they um, systematize and concretize answers to those questions through religious media? And uh, in a similar vein, I think in light of um, what we know about the state of the um, environmental crisis and climate change, I've been um, really interested in how do we repair what seems to be a broken relationship to the earth in modernity um, and live in a way that can lead to more human earth flourishing. Um, and so I've been interested in, in religion and environmental studies since my days as an undergraduate at Bowdoin, um, where I, I got particularly interested in Theravada Buddhism um, because I was interested in the way Buddhism orients people to an interconnected web of, of existence um, and the sort of continuity between the human and the more than human world. Um, so I studied abroad in Sri Lanka um, I was fortunate to return after college, and I studied in a rural um, rice-cultivating village in the highlands of Sri Lanka for the better part of a year. And I was interested in studying how, um, how religious practice, which is this very interesting blend of Theravada Buddhism and local animistic sort of indigenous insights, how they intersect with um, the cycles of rice cultivation and how religion is realized on the ground uh, in a in a um, uh, rice cultivating village. So I would attend um, rice offering ceremonies and harvest festivals and you know different um, uh, you know bodhi puja or blessing of a sacred bodhi tree, trying to understand what is this nexus of uh, of religiosity and the environment. Um, and after that really life-changing experience in Sri Lanka, I returned to the U.S. and, and taught um, philosophy and religion at a boarding school in Connecticut, where I was continually interested in how, did, how have humans conceived of our relationship with nature through time? How has um, that process of alienation happened in the course of modernity and sort of after the Industrial Revolution, the advent of modern science, um, and how do we, um, and, and when I say that, it, I mean, um, how, has, um, how has science been both uh, a force for good in illuminating so much about the natural world, and how has, um, how has science in certain ways been co-opted by market forces to um, in some in some cases, treat the natural world as a commodity to be exploited. 
and how can we mend those um, that rupture through reintegrating science and humanities in light of the environmental challenges we face today? So. Wow, it's really every word you say, I it just touches my heart, and it's how amazing and. Buddhism is, I think, a religion that we can really learn a lot from in our Western world and our Western religions. Um, and it's no, no, um, coincidence that every single academic professional on this podcast has talked about Buddhism, Hinduism, Native American religions, just this connection with the natural world. And it's so amazing to hear that you actually were able to live it in Sri Lanka and go to these ceremonies what did the rice ceremony kind of look like and and how did that incorporate religion and the environment yeah so um in this particular sinhalese buddhist community um the the natural world is seen as something that is alive and sacred you know i remember the first time i got ready to go into the rice paddies and where where farmers are typically knee deep in mud and there are cobras and and leeches, and I was naturally quite afraid of uh, getting there. So I brought this this tall, this large pair of rubber boots, and I'm, I'll never forget my host mother at the edge of the paddy field said said to me in Sinhala, "You can't wear those." And I said, "I can't." You know, she said, um, "No, the the paddy fields are sacred." Um, so the source of life, the source of um, fecundity in this village is considered sacred. And there are all sorts of rituals and beliefs that reflect that, the ways in which that which sustains us is a sacred reality. And so, um, yeah, so farmers actually remove their shoes um, and go barefoot as they do in a village temple when they're in the rice paddies. Um, so um, farmers will worship young rice crops when they're first planted. Um, and um, during during the course of the harvest, um, the farmers will carve special threshing circles made of dried cow dung called the uh, akamata, which is um, sort of it's a sacred threshing circle um, where they'll often carve a certain astrological symbol to petition these um, these gods, which are included in the in the Buddhist pantheon in popular. Uh, Buddhism in many places um, for their protection over the harvest and um, and um, after the rice is harvested the first rice crop of the season is typically offered in the um, in an all-night ceremony um, to the Buddha um, in a festival called Alut Sahal Mangale so this idea that after all months of labor you know in these sacred paddy fields the first um, harvest of the year is ritually given away to the to the Buddha. So, I think you find in in many um, communities that have been living in deep intimacy with the natural world for millennia, there's a sense of reciprocity that um, people don't just take from the natural world, but there's a onus to give back to the natural world. And I think I learned so much about what that means to be part of an interconnected web of life and how we have responsibilities and duties to um, replenish the earth so much as the earth, you know, um, suits human needs. Yeah, it's amazing. How do you think that 
Buddhism and Sri Lanka have done that than America and our Western culture has not. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it's a really complex question and I have to be careful of not overly um, idealizing or romanticizing, you know, a Sri Lankan reality and sort of disparaging the Western reality. You know, Sri Lanka has a host of environmental problems and deforestation um, and, you know, toxicity and, you know, a number of environmental issues that it faces. Um, at the same time, I think, um, you know, one can learn a lot from observing how many um, farming communities who've lived close to the land for millennia, as well as um, traditional indigenous peoples, the uh, Veda people in Sri Lanka, who are um, traditionally foragers, how they have uh, lived in close proximity to the land. Um, I think um, this sense of um, seeing the um, seeing the human as part of an interconnected ecosystem and not as um, not as sort of an alienated consumer um, uh, has I think great things to to teach us here in the West in the United States. You know, questions like where does my food come from? Where do the products that I use um, come from? What are they made of? Right, reconnecting the that you know as in rural Sri Lanka as what they imagine is the sacred origins with the um, the aspects of the earth that humans enjoy and that we, that nourish us. Um, so reconnecting those things, we have a lot to learn from the um, the teachings of simplicity. You know, I lived with two different incredibly generous host families during my time in Sri Lanka and. We would eat rice and curry three meals a day. Um, mo most of it was homegrown, you know, uh, either in the home garden or in the village. And it wasn't a question of, you know, um, you know, what type of food am I going to eat? Or um, there wasn't um, as much um, variety and choice, which has its blessings, but the the virtue of simplicity and of restricting one's diet particularly has a lot to teach us about eating um a plant-based diet in the west um uh you know in, in in a place like sri lanka um you have many vegetarians um meat when it is eaten in many sinhalese and i would say tamil diets particularly is just one part of a larger meal and it's um actually not very very common um, so, um, I would say, uh, you know, a traditional, uh, locally sourced diet has a lot to teach Westerners about, um, the virtues and the benefits of a plant-based diet, um, born from simplicity and from a deep reverential connection to the sources in the land that sustain us. Yeah, it's amazing. I actually just went to a talk. Um, I went to a workshop about decolonizing your diet mm. and, I went because I knew that it had something to do with religion and I knew that I would be interested in it. Mm -hmm. And really the outcome was, do you know your land and are you connected to your land and what you're eating? And what mm -hmm. I learned is I'm eating everything from everywhere else except from Colorado. Like I've lived in Colorado for 21 years. I have never eaten a Colorado diet. Really, I've eaten a Chinese diet, an Asian diet, and it's probably, and it's really an Americanized Colorado and it's so mm. fascinating to me that 
I'm trying to be so connected with this land around me and I don't even know the food that I'm eating or where I'm getting my food from. You know, I'm eating at the dining halls. I'm eating from a restaurant. I'm just trying to live off of a college, um, college money, just nothing. And it's really like, I have no idea where I'm getting my food from. And, and it is like colonized food and you don't even know about the land that you're living on. So it's so beautiful to hear that you got to be connected to your land and that everyone in, or the host families that you are with are connected to their land and are happy with the simplicity of it. And it's really beautiful to hear. Yeah, I think we, yeah, there's a lot to be learned um, from, re, yeah, re, re, reconnecting those, um, yeah, those vines that tie us to the land. And I think in, um, in American and Western culture, it's often difficult. I, you know, I, I empathize with your experience to, um, to you know, to know um, where your food comes from. And often, the cheapest food, the most affordable food, is um, fast food or food that we have, you know, no idea or highly processed food uh, for which we we don't know where it comes from. So it's a challenge um, we all face. I was just talking about this with Mary Evelyn Tucker yesterday, actually. Um, it's hard to feel unscathed, you know, and totally, um, like I'm totally eating local and eating, um, you know, plant-based diet in, in, um, this Western culture, but we can try, we can try our best to learn more about the bioregions that sustain us to learn how our eating habits, our consumptive habits have an impact on the land. Um, and to, you know, to bring attention to what, you know, scientists call those, those negative externalities or, or the, um, the, you know, the idea that, um, what, what really is waste, you know, do, is anything we, do, everything, I think that's something we can learn from Buddhism is, is every action has a, um, uh, a particular, uh, effect, uh, ripple effect, you know, you might say, you know, from, from a scientific perspective, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Um, there's, and when we think about our consumptive habits, I think we ought to bring attention to the ways that that affects landfills and waste, you know, uh, how that waste is distributed, you know, through particular, you know, rivers or ecosystems that it might affect. And, um, even if we're imperfect, how can we bring attention and try to do better through things like composting or trying to minimize use of single-use plastics? Um, and through that, through those efforts, I feel as though we can um, reconnect with those sort of sacred origins in the earth, you know, to, re to re-intimate ourselves with the, the cycles that have sustained humans for millennia. Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful the way you speak and the way you put it because when you think about religion and you're trying to talk with someone who really connects with their religion more than science like i am a science major and it's hard like it's complicated it's big words climate change sea level rise it's so hard but the way you say even if you're imperfect which we talk about in a lot of western religions we um in christianity in judaism we really say like we are imperfect and 
we're on this journey to become perfect and what whatever that means. And so it's so amazing to kind of think about it like we're humans. Even if we're imperfect in our actions towards the environment, we can try, which is so important just to really think, okay, I really want to go eat a hamburger right now. But let me just think, let me just take a step back and think, what is the reaction? What is the ripple effect? What's the butterfly effect of this? And what would be the difference between eating locally, eating, you know, all these different things we can just try. And I think it's sometimes so hard in our fast paced world to say, I give myself permission to take a step back and think, what am I putting into my body? And what is the reaction? Because a lot of the things that are good for the environment are good for our bodies and are good for our health. And so it's really important to think, okay, doctors are telling us to have a plant-based diet. The environment is telling us to have a plant-based diet. Like, What's stopping us? Is it is it just we love meat, which is the case in a lot of my family members are just like, I could never eat a plant-based diet because it's just not something that interests me. And it's like, okay. Like, you have recognized that, and I hope that you take other actions to be better for the environment. You know, we can always try. And it's not one size fits all. It's we can try and realize our imperfections and try to become perfect. Yeah, I think that's that's such a great point, Amalia. And, you know, a few ideas that uh, came up in response to your, your thoughts is, one, you know, sometimes um, I think in Western culture, we sometimes think about binaries like are you a vegetarian or vegan or are you you know carnivore or you know this or that and putting people into sort of boxes or labels the reality is if all of us just reduced our consumption and our, our meat consumption you know 20 percent or something you know um some to some degree even if it weren't fully fledged you know veganism or vegetarianism that would have huge effects on methane emissions from um, from cattle that are used for industrial agriculture on the forests that are deforested for animal agriculture um, and on all the lands that are used to sustain um, uh, you know, uh, uh, animals used for human food, food production. So um, it, it would have huge, a huge impact. And, you know, as you were saying about the idea of talk, speaking with science, scientists, um, I think something we're realizing is that science is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient. So science has told us for decades that um, human action is causing um, uh, you know, unprecedented impacts on climate systems and that the Earth is, is increasing in temperature and has all these, um, these, these deleterious effects around the world. Um, but how do you get people to care in a world where about 80% of, you know, uh, of the world or more is considered, uh, is religious? How do you connect with people through these religious idioms through which they um, find value and meaning in the world? So how do you convey those scientific insights to those religious traditions? And then how do you also retrieve the environmental insights latent within those traditions as a response to um, uh, the modern ecological crises we face. You know, and that's part of the exciting work of the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology, is looking at the way all these many religious traditions, if not all, have deep ecological wisdom to offer us to in, in this time. Yeah, it's amazing. 
have you ever connected with anyone? Maybe if you're a TA, your students or your professors or people in Sri Lanka, connecting with them to teach them science through their religion? And if you have, how did that work for you? Uh-huh. That's that's a great question. Um, you know, when I was um, in Sri Lanka, I was fortunate to teach English at a university. Um, and in this in the village that I uh, that I lived in for most of my time there, I was mostly there as a listener and, you know, to observe daily life. I wasn't um, so much teaching them about Western science. In fact, I had some really interesting conversations, I will say, with a traditional medicinal doctor who had, um, you know, hundreds uh, hundreds year old palm leaf manuscript with plant-based healing remedies and Buddhist mantras that he would recite to to treat people. And so um, while I, I wasn't in a position of explicitly um, communicating like Western science to, you know, these people that, I, that wasn't um, particularly my role there, um, I learned a lot about the way um, that people living very close to the land have found uh, ways of healing and ways of um, seeing food as a source of um, of healing. You know, food is considered medicine, actually, um, largely from the tradition of um, Ayurveda, uh, which is, you know, a South Asian form of, of uh, a tradition of indigenous medicine. Um, but, yeah, I think in the, in the Yale form of, on religion and ecology, at least, um, we're studying uh, religious communities around the world who are realizing what science is telling us about the nature of an imperiled climate, an imperiled earth community. Um, and whether it's Pope Francis's Laudato Si or the leadership of um, folks like the Dalai Lama and the Karmapa from the Buddhist community, um, they're realizing that um, this um, sacred um, heritage of being part of a 13.8 billion year um, cosmic sequence of transformations that has given rise to human life is being um, threatened and um, and we ought to do something about it. Yeah, oh my gosh. And it's really interesting to hear kind of how um, a lot of indigenous medicine looks at the um, planet and the earth and plants as medicine because I was lucky enough to study abroad in the Amazon rainforest with an indigenous community. Um, and it, I really have learned so much from that community that we would, we went on a walk with a medicinal, um, herbalist and just, he would say like, what is this? And I would say, it's just a plant. It's a, it's a leaf. It's this. And he's like, this is like the way that we treat someone who is deathly ill or like, this is how we treated tuberculosis or all these certain things. And I was like, oh my gosh, we have, this is amazing. Like the mm -hmm. earth and the environment gives us so much and we don't even know, we can't even tap into it because it's so amazing. And I think a lot has been lost. Um, I learned a lot about how in that specific indigenous community in the Amazon rainforest, um, a lot of the younger generations are starting to want to be in the city, wanting to go to university, wanting to do these certain typical Western um, ideologies. So they're 
the community is nervous about learning the uh, losing the medicinal teachings that they've gained in the community. And it was so amazing to learn and just as just to see how wise these communities are and how they have lived so sufficiently off of the environment and what the environment has given them. Wow, it sounds like such a powerful experience. And, it was, uh, it was truly. Know, yeah, I mean, and, you know, from a scientific perspective, we know that the Amazon has about a quarter of the world's carbon, right? And also from a cultural perspective, the indigenous communities that have stewarded those lands have such a deep repository of wisdom. And so I think that's a really important point of thinking about um, environmental and cultural uh, conservation as, um, as inseparable, right? We need to not only preserve ecosystems and try to preserve the band of temperature that has sustained the earth um, for, uh, you know, millions if not billions of years um but also the the human knowledge systems that have arose from that deep intimacy um absolutely yeah and and i had a question for you i had a really amazing interview last week talking about um genesis we were looking at genesis and how it's kind of shaped a lot of uh religions and how it has this dominating effect it there's one line that can be interpreted that humans have domination over the earth and can and God made the earth for humans. And it's and then there's one line that says we coexist, we are equals. So depending on different versions of Genesis, different versions of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, we can all interpret it differently. And so I wonder how you would think that makes one think in their religion, um and their sense of ecology and connection with the environment, how you think being told a domination effect versus a coexisting effect can impact them? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think that's been a source of a, a, a great dialogue um, among like modern Christian theology, um, especially ever since Lynn, Lynn White wrote that provocative uh, article the uh, historical roots of the ecological crisis and um he argued that 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 phrase you know to the humans have dominion over uh the, the earth has had really deleterious effects now uh, many other ish, uh, christian eco theologians interpret that passage differently right that uh, dominion over which is a particular translation and i'm not a biblical scholar myself um uh, might also be envisioned as stewardship, right? And have responsibility over. Um, and um, there uh, is, if you look at the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's it's rife with ecological wisdom and actually um, God appearing to humans, whether it's through um, a burning bush or uh, brooding over creation as a, as a dove. This idea of God appearing as... Um, as embedded in the natural world, I think reframes that idea of humans as simply exalted over a lifeless, inert, and exploitable environment. So, I um, I would say, um, uh, yeah, I think modern um, uh, modern Christianity since the medieval period that has largely exalted 
um, humans above the natural world has had a lot to do with this sort of apathy toward environmental destruction. But I also think deep within both the Bible and early Christian thinkers, whether it's, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, who's preaching to animals or Hildegard of Bingen, the medieval mystic um, uh, who is an herbalist and a monastic with a deep ecological sensibility. Um, you find examples of a deep ecological reverence and a wisdom and this idea of the earth as sacred trust um, within the Christian tradition as well. So I think it's it's a matter of reinterpretation, reimagination. Um, the Yale Forum um, likes to talk about um, uh, retrieval. So retrieving uh, latent ecological insights from within a particular um, tradition. And a lot of the work is of, um, uh, th there's a lot of exciting work in the new animism. So looking at the sort of animistic insights within the Bible to understand the deep ecological wisdom within that text. There's a lot of exciting scholarship outpouring from that field. Um, so retrieval, uh, reevaluation. So looking at how do we understand a passage like you know, humans have dominion over in light of the Anthropocene environmental uh, 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 environmental problems. So, you know, dominion over. We know that that anthropocentric um, sort of arrogant interpretation doesn't suit the, the problems that we're facing. Um, so it um, so that reevaluation might prompt us to reconstruct what that means, right? So how would we understand? humans is having a unique responsibility toward uh, stewardship over the natural world. That's the work of a lot of exciting uh, Christian eco-theology recently. And in that vein, I would say religions are living repositories of wisdom, right? I, I wouldn't say that religions are static or fixed, but they're always evolving to meet particular social and historical moments. Um, so that, I think, is part of the exciting work of seeing how... Um, religions are evolving to respond to this planetary planetary epoch because we're being prompted perhaps for the first time to think as an earth community and not just as isolated nation states or even as isolated religions but as an earth community and how do we align our deep psychic energies along uh the grain of healing for for the entire earth wow it's it's amazing the way that you say always evolving and it's so true that it's constantly evolving, and it was so cool to uh, read Pope Francis's um, just how in Catholicism we can connect to the environment and how this is our responsibility as humans to learn from the Bible about the environment and about our changing climate. And so I wonder, with all of these evolving religions, do you think that religious leaders in our Western world have the knowledge they need to connect the environment to passages, or do you think that there may be some lack of knowledge or grasp of understanding there? I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but I think, you know, folks like uh, Catherine Hayhoe are really important figures. She's a leading climate scientist and an evangelical Christian who's made a lot of progress speaking to the evangelical Christian community in the United States and others. I believe she's actually Canadian. Um, but teaches in, uh, in Texas, I believe, um, and has made a, a tremendous uh, 
yeah, impact in communicating climate science to, you know, uh, to the even, you know, to an evangelical Christian community, which has a huge amount of influence over American politics and values, um, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of work to be done um, in um, moving beyond, frankly, a personal and salvific redemption focus. The idea that a person has a relationship with a transcendent God and that is the, pr the primary goal of human life is to, um, is to earn that blessing from a transcendent God and a blessed afterlife. And what happens in this earth doesn't really matter, you know, or is, is uh, expendable. Um, I think um, folks like Catherine Hayhoe are, are arguing that we have uh, a sacred duty to protect God's creation or this, you know, the earth community um, from the irreparable harms of climate change. So there is a lot of work to be done, but there's also a lot of exciting momentum um, in realizing that, you know, the ways I, I think um, Western uh, Christianity has been fairly culpable, as as Lynn White does illuminate in that essay, um, but but through the leadership of you know the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, who is arguably the first modern Christian leader to really be an outspoken proponent of environmental issues, or Pope Francis through his encyclical Laudato Si, um, there's. There's a lot of exciting leadership, and I certainly know here a lot of the uh, at Yale Divinity School a lot of the emerging um, religious leaders um, uh, are deep are keenly aware of environmental issues, and that that gives me great hope for the future. Yeah, it's so beautiful to hear because I um, haven't interviewed. I am not at the point of interviewing religious leaders yet. I'm just in my mm -hmm. scholars part, and so it's so amazing to hear that new religious leaders that are coming into the field are learning this. And it's amazing because Yale Divinity School, there's a reason I reached out to Yale because it is known around the world for the Divinity School. And it's so amazing that now you have the religion and ecology part so that future leaders can take these courses and even just an introduction, just even just a conversation with you, they would learn so much. And so it's so amazing to hear that Yale is doing so much and that our future leaders of our religious groups are learning so much and can teach older uh, leaders and that older leaders are willing to adapt and evolve their teachings. And so it's so beautiful to hear. Mm -hmm. um, well, that is all my questions and you answered them beautifully. And I wanted to give you the opportunity. Is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to share with us or any last thoughts you had? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just wanted to say that thank you so much, Amalia, for having me on. And I'm deeply indebted to the professors I work with, Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm, who have been absolute visionaries in spearheading the field and force of religion and ecology, of both, uh, both illuminating how religions um, uh, orient themselves to, uh, the, to the earth, and also how uh, religious environmentalism move, is emerging in response to these ecological crises. And, and they draw so much from their teacher, Thomas Berry, who is a cultural historian um, with a profound planetary and, and um, uh, uh, frankly, like prophetic um, sensibility about, the, uh, about 
the, the, the sacred nature of, of the earth community and the threats that we're facing in this contemporary Anthropocene. And one of the things that, um, a few things I'll, I'll leave you with that, um, that he, that he, he, he said that it really stuck with me are that every living being is a unique revelation of that divine mystery from whence all things came into being. No, that every living being is telling its own story, right? Is a unique manifestation of this mysterious cosmos. And in that light, the idea of species extinction um, takes on a whole new resonance, I think. Um, and then the other um, great insight um, he had, I think, that drives my work in religion and ecology is that only a sense of the sacred will save us. Um, and that, you know, in an era of, you know, of secular academia, that can be sort of a fraught concept. But this idea that um, something we deeply ch cherish and value is worth striving for and worth fighting for. And that can be envisioned in many different ways, from many different religious communities or secular communities. But the idea that the earth is and the universe are our shared and common home, and we must do everything we can um, as you know, as younger voices to to protect and um, help this this earth, not just to sustain the earth, but to help it flourish. Wow. It's beautiful, and I love that every living being thought that like every living being is interconnected, and and it was beautiful. And I can't wait to look up Thomas Berry and learn more from him. And really, I appreciate you being on here so much and all your words of wisdom. I've learned a lot, and I can't wait for the listeners to learn a lot. And I can't wait for you to be the future leader of religion and ecology, and to start to teach everyone and learn and i'm so excited to see everything that you accomplish likewise maya i mean it's it's incredible that you're you know taking this initiative while as an undergraduate and i just applaud the work you're doing and i'm really excited for what horizons you have ahead and you know we're all we're all lucky for for your leadership so i hope you'll keep it up and and yeah look forward to, to staying connected thank you i'm so excited and thank you everyone for listening um and this was our episode with sam king